0: Hello, good morning and welcome. Uh, welcome to City Church, Stone Haven. My name is Ali and today we are uh, continuing our series in Mark uh, called The King and His Cross through the Gospel of Mark. And um, we've reached Mark 8, uh, 31, which is almost like the halfway point uh, in the Gospel. It's like a turning point in the Gospel. And um, Jesus has been showing glimpses of the kingdom. He's been showing glimpses of what uh, he, the kingdom coming on earth looks like in the world shown that through his authority, through uh, how he speaks, through controlling the elements, through uh, controlling the spiritual realms, through physical healing. And um, last week uh, he led uh, his disciples up to the mountain of Mount Hermon, just at the the edge of that mountain, uh, to the the city of Caesarea Philippi. And um, I want you to imagine the scene, that you're on the edge of this mountain. So this mountain is behind you, and you can see everything uh, on a clear day that is just you've just walked and almost there's two roads there there's the road that you've just traveled uh through uh Israel and up to this point and then also with Jesus there's the road he can see that he needs to take next which is to Jerusalem so there's almost like this this point where that's where we've been and that's where we're going and um On uh, Jill and I's wedding day, when uh, we were in the service, uh, we had a prophetic word. Someone prayed a prophetic word over us. And it was this. It was that we've come to this day um, uh, ready with our suitcases packed. And actually, uh, God wants to say to put away the suitcases, but I've given you backpacks. Uh, for the next step of the journey and for us that meant a few things like we we were looking for where we were going to live we were looking to live in Aberdeen and we ended up in Stonehaven um, and we we're like oh that's very funny we thought we were going to be in Aberdeen we were actually in Stonehaven but when we f- d- explored that further it was actually that he was calling us to lead this site and we didn't know that at the time but it was like leave the suitcases of what you're doing and take the backpacks so of this is the new thing that I've given to you But for all of us, we have that moment where we're on that mountaintop almost, where this is where I've been, this is where my life has been before, and this actually, when I become a Christian, when I know Jesus, this is where my life is going next. For some of us today, I feel we're talking about the cost and the reward of following Jesus, and the picture I want us to have in our minds are what are the suitcases that we need to leave behind, and what are the backpacks that we need to pick up and go for the next step of our journey. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, We're going to look at three statements that Jesus makes in this passage and what that means for us. And um, what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to read uh, those verses, starting in Mark 8, uh, uh, verse 31. And then we're going to read all the way to Mark 9, uh, verse 1. This is Jesus. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Why don't we pray? Now pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this time together, for this moment that we share together to open your word. And we love your word. And we just pray this morning. Would you speak to us? It says in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is God breathed for rebuking and correcting and building up those who are followers of God. We just pray now, Jesus, would you breathe life into us today? Would you speak to us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So, um, I have four points today. Two are what are the things that are in our suitcases that we need to let go of? And uh, two are what are the things in our rucksack that we need to pick up? So we'll try and fly through this pretty quickly. So um, when we follow Jesus, the first thing that we have to put down is our preconceptions. Um, That first verse uh, that is said here, verse 31, uh, Peter is saying, that's not who I believe. That's not the Messiah that I believe in. And Jesus says to him, the first statement he says to Peter is, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So they've reached the mountainside and um, Jesus starts to unpack uh, what the Messiah looks like. We've just had this revelation moment where Peter has said, you are the Messiah. And that like, kind of unlocks something for Peter that he's like, "Ah, oh, you, you are the Messiah. You are the real deal. This is who you are. You're not just a teacher. You're not just um, someone who uh, knows stuff, who's able to heal. But you are the Messiah. But then Jesus says what that Messiah looks like, that this Messiah will endure suffering, will endure hardship, will endure rejection, and ultimately will be killed and rise three days later. And Peter hears this and he doesn't like it. And he's, he's like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not what I've signed up for. That's not who I believe you are. And he starts to rebuke Peter to Jesus even. And Jesus stops him and rebukes him which sounds like a very fun thing to have to be rebuked by Jesus. That sounds very scary. Um, But he rebukes them in front of the disciples, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Incredibly powerful language. And he almost turns his back in that moment to Peter and says, get behind me. So you must think when you're Peter there, you're like, oh, my goodness. that's awful. All all I wanted to do is say, "That's that's not what I want. That's not who you are. But then he says this. He says, you don't have in mind... The concerns of God, only human concerns. And what Jesus is doing here is he's breaking down Peter's view of what the Messiah should be. And um, this Jewish view of the Messiah uh, was that he would be a political leader, that he would be a revolutionary, and that he would be someone who could overthrow the oppressive government regime of the Roman Empire and bring Israel back into its place as being uh, the chosen nation of God. So almost he's thinking he's going to be a warrior with uh, uh, spiritual powers, but able to overthrow this regime and able to uprise. And... um He would have probably got this from stories from the past where um, in some ways they would have heard the stories of Moses that would have been brought down to them. Seeing Moses uh, take the nation of Israel out in Exodus, out of Egypt into the promised land and almost seen this again as Jesus would be this fulfillment of this Messiah. Or even uh, more recently than that, um, a political figure called Judas Maccabeus who uh, in 164 BC so just about 200 years before this uh, restored the temple to Jerusalem uh, from the powers that were overthrowing it at the time so almost these are glimpses of what Peter had thought would be the messiah and Jesus he thinks is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of that of a warrior king of a political leader who can heal but who will bring Israel back to its Rightful place, or so he thinks. And he thinks he's going to do that by sword, by fire, by overthrowing. But Jesus doesn't line up with his preconceptions. Because Jesus, the Messiah that we know, the Messiah that we see, is the suffering servant. And we see that in Isaiah 53. This prophecy that would have been foretold before is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And I just want to read these verses for us. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all you have peter's preconceptions and then you have jesus and he says this is how this is how i am the messiah i'm going to be that suffering servant suffering was purely part of what jesus was called to be on earth and peter was uneasy he didn't like that but that was what jesus was called to do he was correcting peter's preconceptions there and for all of us, we um, sometimes think that uh, we're going to be one of the other disciples in this story, that we're going to be one that be like, oh, Peter, how did you not know that? Come on. But when we all think about it, we are all Peter, aren't we? We all have preconceptions about what we think Jesus should be. will give you a weak story, a weak example. Thomas Jefferson, one of the former presidents of the United States in 1820, created his own version of the gospel called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He did this by cutting and pasting with a razor and some glue numerous sections from his King James Bible. And he would take out the bits that he didn't feel agreed or with the religion of the time. He wanted to shake that up and get back to what he thought was true religion. So he took out all miracles. He took out any mention of the supernatural, the resurrection and Jesus being seen as divine. And he did this to improve what he saw as the corrupt religion of his day. And he said this, that I have performed this operation for my own use, cutting verse by verse out of the printed book. So out of this book, I've cut these things out. This is what he believed. I've cut these things out, which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. So for Thomas Jefferson, he felt that that was the right thing to do. To cut out the bits that he didn't agree with, maybe that he didn't uh, initially line up with. That he wanted to say, these are the diamonds in this, what you'd call a dunghill. And we think about that and we think maybe that's a bit cheeky. Maybe we you shouldn't do that. But ultimately, we're all probably guilty of cutting out of sections of the of the New Testament, of the Old Testament. Things that we don't like about Jesus. Of the Bible version that we want him to be. What are we cutting out? What are we cutting and pasting out of our gospel? What are the preconceptions that we have that we want Jesus almost to be an idolized version of ourselves? Tim Keller says that if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idolized version of yourself. It's challenging, isn't it? Ugh. You t- took the weight of your world there well there. You're like, what are we cutting out? Because we believe in the gospel, we believe in this book, we believe that it's all God-breathed, all scripture is God-breathed. So what are we taking out? We can all be like Peter, suiting ourselves, um, cutting out those things that don't align with our lifestyle. But the cost of following Jesus is that we need to put those preconceptions back in that suitcase and say goodbye to them. We need to change, we need to align ourselves with the true Jesus, with the true gospel. And not just the cut and paste gospel. So the cost of following Jesus is that we put down our preconceptions. We also put down our worldly desires. You can tell this is going to be a fun one. It says in verse 34. Jesus then speaks to the crowd after he's spoken to Peter. He speaks to the crowd generally just to show what it means to follow Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. And in this uh, passage, uh, there's a number of different opposites or almost contradictory statements that we see that Jesus says that kind of provoke, that challenge us, that prod us into thinking about how we follow Jesus. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple in verse 34 must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Verse 35 if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. Verse 36, what good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? And Jesus is showing that to follow him it's countercultural, it's almost back to front compared to what society would think. Society tells us that we can find love anywhere, and that the goal of life is to find ourselves, and that there's no limitation on life. Only the limitations that you and I put on our lives. And I was thinking about this about finding yourself. Finding yourself. That's it's quite a selfish thing to do in some ways. Hmm. It's it's almost we see that in the rise of the gap year that comes about as an obvious shift of life of about finding yourself, that kind of middle point in your life where like, oh I can just gonna take a year to find myself. Now, just before we say, it, I did do a gap year. So I'm not just say if you're gonna go on a gap year or if you've been on a gap year, don't feel bad. But it's just the example I'm gonna use of finding a gap year. But in the 60s, the gap year were on the rise. They used to. Um, they were probably when they first came about uh, in the UK. And the reason behind them were cultural exchange, uh, going to a different culture, learning about someone else's culture, and bringing that back, um, and you sharing your culture as well. Greater unity in the world, going out to various different places, and again through cultural exchange, uh, bringing the world closer together, um, and also um, giving back to the world volunteering in areas less fortunate. So that sounds very noble, but probably in the last maybe 10 years or so, the gap year has changed to the gap year, hasn't it? The gap year, where instead of that, there's almost a cultural element of, I just want to go and I want to consume. I want to go to far off places in the world, and I want to consume what they have. I'm going to go to the Southeast Asia, uh, go to their find something there I like, then I'm going to South America, find something there. And what we're doing, if we're on a gap yaw, is that we're consuming everything from different cultures in the world and almost like a pick and mix, taking from one tray of the sweets there, from one tray of the sweets there, putting it into our bag, giving it a shake, putting it on the scales, paying for it. And then we're saying, that's the way I want to live. That's my ideology almost. It's a consumerist way of looking at life. It's very pick and mix. And it's very selfish because we're saying, I just want to consume everything and then I'll put away the things I don't like, but actually I'm just going to do that rather than give away. It's costly for the world, but it's costly not for us if we do that. And it's consumerist. an example of almost gaining the whole world. But within that, we lose ourselves, don't we? If we just consume and we just take all those things, then we just get a bit muddled. We don't know which way is up. That we don't understand. But as Christians, truly finding ourselves is being found in Jesus. It's been found in him. And I know that in my life, that when I was looking for acceptance, when I was looking for direction, finding myself in him was where I found the true meaning of life. We are one in Christ. And in some ways, when we do that, that costs us everything. And we give out. We say, Jesus, take my life. Rather than I'm going to take from the world. We say, Jesus, take my life. Take it all. You can have everything. And we say, less of me and more of you. And that is a very selfless way to live. Because we're saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I know for some of us in our situations, we've probably thought this week, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I'm just going to give out to you, and then when we do that, He meets us in that, and we find that truth, we find that meaning, we find that love that we're striving for. So following Jesus is countercultural, as it goes against uh, that way of living of just taking, but it also countercultural, as it goes against um, the idea that there's no limits in life, that love can be found anywhere, and. Um, Jesus says the cost of following him is denying ourselves, taking up our cross and follow me. The word deny shows there's almost an active role to play uh, in our part to stay away from sin. Um, When we become a Christian, we've been freed from that sin. We've been freed from the authority of that sin. But there's still that choice that we have. So to give you an example, imagine, if you will, that I was in the army. Now, That would take quite a bit of stretch of the imagination, I know. Uh, But imagine I'm in the army, and my superior officer comes up to me, and he says, Elder, uh, jump. If I see my superior officer, and he says to me, jump, I'm going to say, how high, aren't I? Unless I want to get in trouble, which I don't. I'm a good boy. So I say, how high, sir? Every time I'm in the army, when I'm in the army the whole time, he says, jump, I say, how high? Now, fast forward maybe six months down the line. I've been discharged from the army, Uh, I'm out of uniform, I'm not in the army anymore, I'm walking down the street, going to Tesco, and who do I bump into? My army general, superior officer. Now, in that moment, if he says, elder, jump, I've got a choice there, don't I? I could say how high, but living in my new life, I'm no longer part of the army. I'm no longer part of that world. Actually, I can say to him, no. I can say no. I can say you are no longer, I'm no longer under your authority. I'm no longer, uh, I don't have to listen to anything that you say because I'm no longer under your authority. That's what like, what it's like with sin. When we become Christians when we come under God's love when we come under his authority we're no longer under the authority of sin that sin can come to us and say jump and we say no I'm no longer under your authority I'm under a new authority I'm under God's authority of love but there's still that choice isn't there we could still say well I could maybe jump a little bit I can maybe do that little jump But we need to deny ourselves. We need to deny ourselves and say, no, I'm not under that authority now. I live under that new authority. I don't need to jump. That's our choice. So what does denying ourselves look like? Maybe a couple of examples of denying ourselves. What the world sees as acceptable, but God sees as not. Maybe it's the magazine that's passed around in the workplace. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe that magazine's passed around in the playground. I don't know. Maybe, or it's on an app. Maybe it's the constant gossip break time. The fact that everyone uh, is going on holiday with their significant other and you and your significant other are are not married yet. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something else. But Jesus wants us to deny these things because he knows they aren't good for our souls. And he desperately doesn't want us to lose them. He's reacting against a lukewarm faith of double lives of a Sunday life and then a Monday to Saturday life. He's challenging us to live the most abundant and full life that we can through him. He's also stopping us having blind spots by bringing us closer into him, bringing our choices to live in the light so we can see what is good, what is pure, and also what needs to go back in the suitcase. And as a church, we maybe have a couple of ways that we could easily uh, do that, where we could help each other to do that more. Uh, one thing is accountability, and the other thing is small group. And accountability is uh, meeting up with someone maybe who's a bit further on in the journey than you are, one-to-one, and saying, um, asking, being asked life's difficult questions, keeping us away from a lukewarm faith, and being direct and being blunt with that. And that's not easy that's what we need to keep on that road to keep on that path with jesus and also um, coming to a small group each week allows us to again in community and love have that opportunity to share love but also to share truth to share encouragement but also to share challenge for us in our lives that in the in the nine to five we can have those people who ask questions of us the cost of following jesus is uh putting down our preconceptions and putting down those worldly desires that's what we need to put back in the suitcase. But what is uh, the reward? What are the things that we can pick up with the rucksack? And I'm going to very quickly go through these. The last statement I want to read is verse chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus says, Some who are standing here won't taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So what is the reward? What do we pick up? When we follow Jesus, we pick up his glory. I don't want to go too much into the next passage, but um, we see, it says six days later, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up that mountainside. And there's a moment uh, where we have what we call the transfiguration of Jesus. Where he's lifted up and where uh, these three glimpse his glory, his full glory. Where he becomes whiter than white in his clothing. He appears to them in his radiant glory. The reward of following Jesus is seeing Christ for who he really is. In all his radiance and all his glory. In all his purity and all his splendor. That is what we can pick up when we follow Jesus. We can put that in our rucksack. We can keep that for us. And know that that is who we follow. That is the man that we follow. That is the God that we follow. The sin that we were once a slave to. We are no longer on earth. Authority, and we're washed clean and what the father sees instead of that sin he sees Jesus in his glory he sees his purity and his splendor we're washed clean of that our reward that we pick up is his glory but also the reward we pick up is his power those same disciples that experience God's glory in six days time at Pentecost in that upper room they experience his power They were there when the Holy Spirit came on them in power. The reward is that we pick up his glory. We pick up his power. I know that in Chuck and Tyron's preaching series, we've been going through what it means to be filled with God's power. And in our small groups, we've been going through everyday supernatural of that, of exploring, resting in God, of exploring the spiritual gifts, receiving from him and experiencing his power. That is the reward of following Jesus. We put down those things, but we pick up his glory and his power. We see him for who he is, his love and acceptance of us, and we receive his power. We come closer to him. We bring his kingdom into the world more. And um, so we see that's the cost and that's the reward of following Jesus. But what is our response? Well, for some of us, we probably have to put down some things, don't we? We probably have to put in the suitcase those things that we feel actually, that's a my preconception of Jesus isn't right. Or actually, I've been living a lukewarm faith and I need to put that down. And For others of us, we need to pick up those things where we just need to see his glory again. We just need to be reminded of who Jesus is in all his power and his might. Or we need to Receive his power. And remember that the, we just say, Holy Spirit, come. We do that every uh, Sunday morning. We say, Holy Spirit, come. And just receive from him. But for all of these prayer points, whatever they look like for us, I felt we need to remember the cost that Jesus paid for each one of us. And um, I was reminded while I was preparing for this, I was reminded of that song um, by, by Rend Collective uh, called The Cost. Now for some of you, you, may have never heard that before, um, but for some of us who've been in uh, City Church for a while, um, that was actually for us in our worship times, that was an anthem for us for a while, where um, you may not know the full story of why we're here, but we used to meet in one place, uh, one service at one time. And the church was growing, and we didn't know what to do. There were so many people coming, but people didn't stay. And then after praying, thinking about buying a b- bigger building, that didn't happen. We then had this God thought of spreading life together, of having sites all around uh, the Aberdeen area and the Shire to where we are today, where we have seven sites, 11 services. And we just planted a church in Inverness as well. Yeah. So it was almost like, what do we do? And we had this vision of spreading life together. And in October 2012, uh, some of you were there, some of you weren't there. We had this gift day. But we had a certain target to meet. I think it was about £440,000 that we felt, this is how we do spreading life. This is what it's all going to cost. And we came together and uh, Hazel Irving Fortescue had given us a lovely big wicker basket, which we all put our pledges into. Families coming up together. And I remember as all these families were coming up and all these services giving their pledges, this was the song that was being played over us and we were worshipping too. And it kind of started spreading life through that. And in that, of those of us that were there, we put down, we sacrificed something, didn't we? But then what we picked up was we saw God move in this area and other areas where hundreds have come to faith through that, where people have been restored, where people who've never been in church have come to church through that. There was a cost, but the reward we're still reaping. And again, every time we think about that we in our lives, we need to think about that cost, but also that reward. But these words say this. It says, I'm saying yes to you and no to my desires. I'll leave myself behind and follow you. I'll chase you through the pain. I'll carry my cross because real love is not afraid to bleed. And the chorus says that I've counted up the cost And you are worth it. Wouldn't it be great for us as a site, maybe just for this next season, almost again, in our hearts, in our lives, to pick that up as our anthem and to say, Jesus, I've counted up the cost and you are worth it. Wouldn't that transform our lives? We think about that on the day to day. Wouldn't we see the glory of the Lord more? Wouldn't we see his power in action, his presence in our lives? So when you think about that, again, that vision that we're on this mountaintop, we've seen the road we've traveled, we see the road that we've come to, that we're going on, what are we putting in the suitcase and leaving? And what are we putting in our rucksack and taking? Why don't we stand? I'll pray for us.